Pints with Jack, Season 2, Episode 1. The Great Divorce. Preface. Friends, welcome to the Pints with Jack weekly podcast, where David and I have the distinct privilege of enjoying a drink together, unpacking the writings of C.S. Lewis, and discovering the truth and beauty of Christianity. We are currently in Season 2, in unlocking the treasures hidden within our favorite C.S. Lewis work, The Great Divorce. For new listeners, my name is Matt, and I am joined by a man whose small decisions have allowed him to compound well beyond me toward good, David. And boy, have we had some time for that compound interest to grow. Uh, (laughs) I checked it out. It's nearly 24 hours of podcast episodes, and we're now going to spend another seven or eight hours going through The Great Divorce. That is incredible to think about. Listeners, you already heard in the opening that now Matt is in charge of that. He thought I couldn't let go of it, but I proved to him that I could. (laughs) And also with the quote of the week, we're going to mix things up this season. For the rest of season two, the quote of the week is going to be a line from the chapter that we're actually currently studying that week. And it's going to be a line that best sums up the central point. So the line for this week is, If we insist on keeping hell, or even earth, we shall not see heaven. If we accept heaven, we shall not be able to retain even the smallest and most intimate souvenirs of hell. So for the drink of the week, it'll just be me because David is suffering from a bit of a flu. Recovering is probably a better word from a flu. Yes, I've been sick all weekend with man flu, which as everybody knows is Right up there with bubonic plague and the sufferings of childbirth. <laughs> I've never heard that. Oh, it's, it's very true. Uh, I'm mostly better, but I'm in quarantine today. I'm having an ice cream instead just to soothe my throat. And it's very unfair because, as everyone knows, I'm at a great disadvantage on this podcast because I don't have the British accent to make me sound intellectual. David now not only has me there, but it's made his voice deeper. So he's got the manly, masculine, deep British accent going right now. I sound like an English Barry White. But for the drink of the week, the Glenn Morangie is on hold right now because I am in Michigan recording, and you can't bring those on an airplane. So I had some Laphroaig here, and this is a very, very peaty, smoky scotch. I'm so proud of you. I was actually going to say, so I I have not loved this scotch, to be frank, but the more (laughs) and more I've drank in it... This even just drankin, drankin, drunk. Oh, is that the right word? The more I've drunk it, <laughs> I think you've drankin too much. So it, is it truly drunk? Yes. Ah, the, the more, more I've, I've drunk, drunk it, of it, my grammar's not good. The more I've drunk this, I'm actually starting to the peatiness is going away. I guess I'm getting used to it. Well, with that, cheers. Cheers. So anyway, how was your Christmas? In the last episode we did together, you were going to go and watch The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Did you do that? I did. It, they definitely develop it so much further than the book. I think I ever mentioned how shocked I was that you read the book and you're probably 40 pages in and you've already passed a few major events and you're already watching Aslan get killed at the table. It, it just progresses very quickly. The book, it was probably 20 plus minutes, I mean the movie, 20 plus minutes before you were even in the wardrobe. I mean, they, they, they really developed all of the scenes is why it, it was able to stretch. What, isn't it over two hours long, I think? Mm-hmm. It takes you less time to read the book. <laughs> but it was great. I actually, I really enjoyed it. We actually had a message via our website 
www.pintswithjack.com from a listener named Paddy. And she wants to let us know that she really enjoyed the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe podcast that we did. She said, I'm a big fan of the Chronicles and their spiritual analogies. You brought out even more than I'd pondered over the decades. Thank you. I appreciate your respect for Lewis and where he's coming from as a background to your commentaries without going down endless, distracting science fiction, fantasy, superhero, movie, bunny trails. I love that line. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we have some diversions, but hopefully they're not too long. We, we try to do a pretty good job pulling it back. I mean, we do sometimes go down tangents and that's normal, but I think we keep them no more in a few minutes. Something else that's happened since the last time we spoke the guys from the Lamppost Listener, they went on a podcast called Where Did You See God? And the presenter made a great comparison that I wish I had made during our episode. Remember we talked about how Lewis used fantasy to slip past the watchful dragons of people's skepticism or resistance to Christianity? Yeah. He compared it to the incident where David has slept with Bathsheba, got her pregnant and killed her husband. And the prophet Nathan comes to him and tells him about this rich man who had all of these great flocks who went and stole the only lamb from a poor man. And David is furious and angry and says, this man deserves to die. And then the prophet Nathan says, you are the man. Basically, he did the same thing that Lewis was doing. He was using a story to slip past David's watchful dragons to help him see some eternal truth, which his prejudice wasn't allowing him to see. I mean, that's an important principle just in anything you're doing, whether you're trying to share a point, you're in a discussion, a conversation. The delivery method can lower someone's guards. I mean, 90% of what you say is how you say it. And so it's so important for someone hearing that you say something in a way that doesn't throw their guards up. And I also had one other thing I wanted to say. It was a bit of a correction. When I was listening through our episode, I realized I compared the atonement in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to substitutionary atonement, but I was thinking about it, and really it's much closer to ransom theory. If you remember when we did that episode on the atonement in mere Christianity, we said there were lots of different theories of atonement. Uh, yeah, I, I got the wrong one. The, the ransom theory is the idea that Christ's sacrifice was a, a ransom uh, paid to either Satan, death, or the Father uh, as a payment for our sin. And that's, I would say, closer to the model that's put forward in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Out of curiosity, how many different theories are there? Oh, th there's loads. I mean, there are definitely some, some more popular ones. And I actually would really like to get Joe Heschmeyer back on the show at some point, and we'll actually go through some of these different atonement models, uh, just to provide a little bit of background to an issue that Lewis pretty much threw up his hands and said, I don't know. But shall we jump into what I was blown away with. I've read this book a number of times. Never, I don't, I don't know if I just skipped the preface or what, but, which wouldn't surprise me knowing just my personality, but it was incredible. So I'm, I'm ready to jump into this because for three pages, this thing packs a huge punch. Well, before we jump into the discussion, our friends over at the Lamppost Listener, at the start of each of their episodes, one of them gives a 150-word summary of the chapter that they're about to discuss. And I thought this would be a good thing to do for The Great Divorce as well. Okay, 150 words. I think it's 148, but anyway. <laughs> With William Blake's poem, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, as his inspiration, Jack says that we constantly hope to have goodness without renouncing evil. In contrast, Lewis says that attaining heaven requires that we let go of evil. 
Quote, You cannot take all luggage with you on all journeys. If we insist on keeping hell, or even earth, we shall not see heaven. If we accept heaven, we shall not be able to retain even the smallest and most intimate souvenirs of hell. Fortunately, what we must give up will ultimately be utterly insignificant. When we look back, we will see earth as having been a preliminary region of either heaven or hell. Jack ends by emphasizing that this story is a fantasy, an imaginative supposal, which he is using to communicate spiritual truths. It's not a strict theology of what happens to us after death. I remember when I first read it, I thought, this could be a possibility of what happens after death. And then I, f- I fell into the trap of assuming it was. And then only when I researched this, having a, a discussion with a friend, I realized, oh, this actually is not meant to be that way. Yeah, I've had quite a lot of friends start this and they get all troubled about halfway through as they start to get the lay of the land of this fantasy world. And it's like, but, but, but is this true? Is this right? In the previous episode on The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, we spoke about this imaginative supposal that this is a what-if scenario. What if the afterlife worked this way? And as Lois says, he's now going to draw out some spiritual truths from it. And if I recall when I was doing some research, I got the sense that he also meant this to be very descriptive of our journey on Earth. So even though this seems to take place in the afterlife, this, this decision that we're making, he wants to very much stress, is a part of our journey now. It's not as if this is something where when we die, this is what this is the journey we're going to be on. This is what needs to happen. It's, it, this is happening every day, today, uh, in our own lives. And I, th- that surprised me. Yeah, and all of this gets revealed towards the end of the book. But when you and I were talking about this, we questioned how much should we try and hide from the listeners? But I think if we're really going to get everything that we want to get out of this book, we've got to do it in an open way. We've got to know that Lewis is giving us an imaginative supposal. And the consequences of seeing this play out in eternity should help us understand the... Uh, the psychology of sin here and now on earth. But there's still one more thing before we get to the discussion. Uh, another new feature each week will be a haiku. Now, this was an idea that I stole. Wait. This was an idea that I was inspired by the Tolkien Road podcast, and it's devoted to the work of Jack's friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, or Tollers. For those of you who don't know what a haiku is, it's a form of Japanese poetry, which is based around the number of syllables in each line. The first and last line have five syllables, and the second line has seven. And I thought this would be nice just because, well, I like haikus. But again, it gets to the heart of what the chapter is about. So here is my haiku for the preface. Souvenirs of hell can't be taken to heaven. Leave them all behind. you write that yourself? I did indeed. Hopeless romantic. <laughs> well, I look forward to hearing your haikus, Matt. <laughs> that wasn't part of the deal. I'm not going to be writing any haikus. We'll see. We'll see. I'll, I'll stick with the drinking of the scotch. Well, now that we've done all of those bits and pieces, we can now actually get on to the discussion. So how would you describe this book? Yeah. So, so the book is about a man's journey, going from this quote-unquote gray town, which is interesting in its own right, to heaven. And on this journey, he and these other visitors, as they get to heaven, are greeted by residents who invite them to come further up and further into heaven. Hmm, that phrase sounds familiar. Yeah, doesn't it? (laughs) And unfortunately, in every chapter you'll see this, one of these visitors chooses to go back to the gray town. They, they, They essentially reject heaven. And I think what's so powerful about the book is they reject heaven for a reason 
that you and I might argue from a worldly perspective doesn't seem that big of a deal, like something that we would do. And so that's what rocked my world when I read this book. I think for me, in each person's rejection, I find myself shouting at the page. Because although sometimes the thing that they're hanging on to might seem really small, it just seems really, really foolish to choose that in favor of heaven. It's like if somebody asks to borrow a dollar and they'll give you a thousand dollars for it and somebody refuses to give up their dollar, that just seems silly. It seems silly when we're on the outside rationally reading it. But at the same time, it's very easy for me to think of scenarios in my own life where I make that decision of choosing a dollar rather than a thousand dollars. If you think of one of our videos that has not been released yet on forgiveness, a lot of times it surrounds those things, like the personal dynamics of relationships with people in our lives where someone hurts you and you don't want to forgive them, even though you're essentially, you're doing something really stupid and you're giving up so much by holding this petty uh, argument with someone. Yeah, it's really hard to give it up because of just our emotional wounds and weakness as human beings. So I can, I can very much understand why they don't. I think I've used this analogy on the podcast before of how some people catch monkeys in the jungle. They take a, a gourd or a container, put something in it that the monkeys really want, and then attach the gourds to the jungle floor. And what the monkeys will do is they will come down and reach their hand down into the container and grab the goodies that are inside. But in so doing, they make a fist. And that means that their hand is now too big to be drawn back up the narrow neck of the container. And as a consequence, they then get captured. They give up their liberty because they are so attached to a few snacks. In the preface, Lewis says that this is a response to The Marriage of Heaven and Hell by William Blake. He was an English poet about the 18th, 19th century, and he was a proto-romantic. Lewis would later become really enamored with your romantics. William Blake, he was really responding to the Enlightenment, which had just taken place, where reason was king. I haven't read much of this work, but it's kind of gnarly. It's actually sometimes really difficult to try and work out what he's really arguing, what he's really saying. And even Lewis says he's not entirely sure what he meant. And if Lewis is saying that, that's saying something. Yeah. But Blake was clearly a genius. Not only did he produce this verse, he also did illustrations, and he did all of this on plates. So he wrote all of his text in reverse, so they could be on printing plates, burnt out using acid, which is an incredible achievement. But for my analysis of The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, I think the main thing that Lewis is really dealing with here is Blake's idea of contraries. Blake regarded good as something passive, based in reason and heavenly. And evil is something that is active and it has energy and is associated with hell. And he effectively reasons through the course of this book that, well, if passivity can sometimes be bad, then so can reason and therefore heaven. And that therefore means that hell can sometimes be good. But the entire work is very confusing because for quite a lot of it, the devil is the one who's speaking. And much like screw tape in the screw tape letters, you're not always entirely sure whether or not what he is saying is true. When I was looking into this, I just went to Wikipedia and was looking at what it was talking about. And just exactly what you're saying, this one sentence that I took from it, so I'm quoting from Wikipedia right now, the energetic creators and the rational organizers, or as he calls them in the marriage of heaven and hell, the devils and angels, both are necessary to life, according to Blake. 
So that, that last sentence was key. Both are necessary to life. So that really fit with what Lewis was saying. He said, the attempt is based on the belief that reality never presents us with an absolutely unavoidable either or. Hence how it just said, Blake wants both and, not either or. I, I, and like you said in the beginning, I don't fully understand how you even can do that. Like, what's the argument that you need both for life? But that's, that's what this whole book, Lewis, is contradicting. He's saying that's wrong. I read someone saying that part of Blake's problem was he read Paradise Lost because that's what he's really uh, dialoguing with. In Paradise Lost, you read about the fall of the angels. And Blake noticed that the parts about God and the angels are much more restrained, much more orderly. But the parts about Satan and the demons, well, they're much more exciting. And just, just think about which newspaper would you prefer to read? Something that's salacious? Or would you prefer to read something that's a little bit more dry and orderly? And I've actually experienced something similar because I've started trying to read the Divine Comedy. So this is Dante's trip through the Inferno, through hell, purgatory, and heaven. And I read all of hell. And honestly, I kind of got a little lost and a little bored as I was going through the second two books. I've heard a lot of people say hell is the best of the books. That's also my opinion. But I think that's partly because heaven is so hard to write. I'm sure at some point we're going to do the screw tape letters. And originally what Lewis wanted to do is to write something also from the angelic point of view, as well as from the demonic point of view. But he said he just couldn't do it because he said everything would have to just drip with holiness and heaven. And that's so hard to do. You, you made an interesting point. I, want, I don't want to let just pass. We're attracted to the evil story. We're attracted to the devil side of things, which can't be stressed enough. I mean, how often do you experience that in life? You know, even got these songs I love. Um, oh, I can't remember who sings it, but they say you got a little bit of the devil in your angel eyes. It's like we all like a little bit of the devil, and we don't want to seem to let go of it. And Blake, it sounds like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but Blake is essentially trying to say you can have them both. And, and there can be some good in that still, where Lewis tries to paint a story that you, you have to kill completely the devil side. And now connecting to this entire thing that we do with this podcast is discovering the truth and beauty of Christianity is we experience this in our daily life where so often we're drawn to the, the evil side, the devil side of things. We think that's where you have the most fun, though. Mm-hmm. And we want to paint a picture in this, in, the, in this show that that isn't actually where the true joy and happiness that you're, you're truly seeking lies. In my episode with Joe Heschmeyer, he said, I don't know how good heaven is, but I know how good sin is. So, so many people just try and work out how much sin do I think I can get away with and still get heaven. That just sums up everything I was trying to say in rambling on for about two minutes. <laughs> we, we're just so drawn to it for some reason. But Lewis says that we can't do that. He says, you cannot take all luggage with you on all journeys. On one journey, even your right hand and your right eye may be among the things you have to leave behind. That is so good. They're alluding to Matthew 5, where Jesus says it's better to pluck out your eye and cut off your hand than to go whole-bodied into hell. That is so good. In the sentence right before that, of your quote, he says, this belief I take to be a disastrous error. Like, that's a strong word. Lewis doesn't usually take shots. I mean, notice that mere Christianity was set up in a way to be very appeasing to many different denominations. Here he comes out like with a right hook 
that says that's a disastrous error. And it misunderstands the Christian journey in its entirety. It was the last few weeks that we had on mere Christianity, the be ye perfect, becoming little Christs, knowing that Jesus is coming to transform all of you. You can't hang on to stuff that is better placed in hell. Yes, there's going to be, he uses this analogy, but we, we know throughout our life, there's all these small decisions that we have to make. He says, rather in a world where every road after a few miles forks into two, in each of those into two again, and at each fork, you must make a decision. Choosing evil or choosing good is happening every single day in our lives. And this is that heavenly hellish creature that we've talked about before. This is that compounded interest. You're making these decisions and the evil will start compounding one way towards the hellish route and the good will start compounding towards the heavenly route. And this is why I'm so pleased we did mere Christianity first. Because yes, it was a little longer, but there in his didactic teaching, we're going to be able to refer to that throughout all of the other books that we're going to talk about. You spoke about choosing different paths along the road and... Lewis has used these kinds of images before in mere Christianity about taking a wrong turning. Well, if you want to get to where you're going, sometimes that requires going back and taking the other turning. And in the same way, if you're doing arithmetic, if you've made a mistake, you have to go back to where the mistake was made and fix it. You can't just keep going. And Lewis sucked at mathematics, so he should really know. Actually, I was reading a biography recently, and it became very clear that his inability in mathematics nearly prevented him from entering Oxford. Oh, wow. Goodness knows what would have happened if that had been the case. Something tells me Oxford was God's will for him, so I'm pretty sure he was, a, he was set in in that sense. It, going back to the beginning, as David pointed out, Blake, in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, thought that good could come out of evil. And there was a good, to some degree, within evil. But Lewis argues, like a mathematics problem, you have to undo the evil by going back to the source. And so that that idea right there is incredibly central to this preface and ultimately to this book. Yes, each of the people who are visiting heaven have to go back, so to speak, to where they made their error. The central thing in their life that allowed them to keep God at arm's length. And I love the, the, the one sentence he has in here that we have to mention because I've, you hear the opposite. I've actually never heard that said this way. But Lewis argues, time does not heal it. How often do you hear that time heals everything? Lies. <laughs> and then we've really got the central line of the chapter, which was the quote of the week. If we insist on keeping hell or even earth. So he says even hanging on to earth can mean that we won't see heaven. And that's the idea of seeking lesser goods rather than greater goods. This is very Augustinian. He goes on to argue that, in fact... When you're giving up earth to, get to go to heaven, you're actually not giving up anything at all. And so what he says is, I believe to be sure that any man who reaches heaven will find that what he abandoned, even in plucking out his right eye, was precisely nothing. That the kernel of what he was really seeking, even in his most depraved wishes, will be there beyond expectation, waiting for him in the high countries. Just to put this into things that David and I have talked about mere Christianity. We've talked about how Augustine argues that sin is just disordered love. Anytime we are sinning or in a state of sin, we tend to actually be seeking a good in the wrong way. And so to get a little bit more concrete and direct, let's just talk about something that many people struggle with, that idea of, of chastity. 
So whenever someone is living an unchaste life from premarital sex or other things that are rampant in our culture with pornography, masturbation, you're actually seeking a good. We all desire this deep connection, this deep intimacy. And so we're actually seeking something beautiful in a massively distorted way. And so what Lewis is saying here is when you kill that, when you let go of that, when you die to that, you're actually going to find you gave nothing up. In fact, you, you found in heaven exactly what you were truly looking for, which is a deep intimacy, a deep connection, a deep love in the way that it was meant to be. Yeah, it made me specifically think about pornography, because there people are seeking beauty. But again, it's been disordered. There's a real beauty that they're really looking for, and it's not on a TV screen. He also hints at something that he's going to unpack later in the book, that those who arrive in heaven will ultimately be able to look back and say that good is everything and heaven everywhere. Basically, that there'll be something retrospective, that once they've arrived in heaven, their history will be colored differently. But the reverse is also true. If we choose earth over heaven, we will eventually come to look at our own history as eternally hellish. And that's actually subtly a very important point. Because how often is it easy to think that uh, sometimes to get to that glory land, you look at these amazing athletes or these successful business people, you think they had to go through how to get there. That, wow, the training, the gr- it was gruesome, it was grueling, the sacrifice they had to make to get there. Yet, if you ever ask any of them, many of them will tell you they loved the journey. They, they, they'll admit it was tough. I'm not trying to pretend it was all sunshine and rainbows. But they will tell you that the journey, the ups and the downs, the challenges, when they look back on it, they're so grateful for it. That's going to be the same thing in our spiritual journey. So it, it can be easy to think that, oh, look at that saint. They made it, but man, it must have been tough to get there. But if you ask them, they'll look back and all the struggles they overcame. They'll find such beauty in it. They'll find heaven in it the entire way. Because when they look back, they see God working through that. I think most people, when they look in their own journeys, if they're in relationship with the Lord and they look back, they see some of their lowest moments and they're almost grateful for them because it brought them to the Lord. And then in the final paragraph of this preface, Lewis offers his thanks to a science fiction writer who gave him the idea for this unbendable quality of heaven, which we're going to encounter in the upcoming chapters. Basically, heaven is going to be very, very real. It's going to hurt the visitor's feet because it's so real. And he got that idea from The Man Who Lived Backwards, written by Charles Hall. And then he ends by making a point which, as we've already discussed, people keep forgetting as they go through The Great Divorce. And I've seen some very angry videos (laughs) against The Great Divorce, accusing Lewis of all kinds of heresy. He makes the point, this is a fantasy. It is a story used to teach a moral. It's an imaginative supposal. He's not speculating about the afterlife. He is just using this story to help us see what sin does to us, and in particular, the choices that we make which either help transform us into a heavenly creature or a hellish one. Friends, I hope David and I talking about this preface gives a really good overview of what to expect in this book. And I am really excited to just dive into this next week. If, if you're the individual, some, I'd imagine some people might have found mere Christianity. I mean, it, it was, it's a very long book and we unpacked a ton of points. I'm really excited for this book because... This will be a little bit less intellectual of a book and more relatable of you'll, you'll, different characters you might see yourself in in, di- in different ways. 
And so get ready for this journey. Read the book with us. It's going to be so amazing going through these chapters. And please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Pints with Jack. Please check out our website, pintswithjack.com. Subscribe on YouTube. And follow along with the videos which we're currently releasing. These are designed, by the way, to be shared with friends that maybe maybe they're not into Christianity or maybe they're ha- they haven't been practicing their faith. Like These are meant to be that, that you can share with those types of individuals. And so please just, when you watch a video, open your iMessage. If you're watching on your computer, quickly send it to 10, 15 people. <laughs> I do that with videos all the time I love. And so that would be a huge, tremendous blessing to David and I if you do that. And until next time, further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.